First Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers, are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Praise the Lord for his word. Let's pray. Father God, I um, acknowledge my own inadequacy, Lord, to... Uh, speak your word, Father, and my own unworthiness, God, as I deal with the very same sins that I so often speak against. Uh, so, Father, I pray, God, that you will help us through your Holy Spirit, Lord, to engage uh, in your word. And as we engage in it, that we will repent where we are guilty, that we'll be encouraged where we're obedient, Father. And at the end, we will worship you uh, with more sanctified life. Father, we love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, in Mexico, uh, a creature stalks the deserts known as the bone tail. It's a creepy little name uh, for this strange animal, but scientists call it the Cantil pit viper. Now, pit vipers are shorter and heavier than normal serpents, and so they can't chase down their prey. Um, instead, they have this a neat little appendage on their tail that, that just is a little bright green slender uh, little, little piece of tail that they can wiggle around to make it look like a worm. So they, they lay on the ground and, and they lay completely still and they stick up this bone tail and they make it wiggle uh, until some unsuspecting bird comes by and begins to hop and looks at the worm and these snakes are even known to let the bird actually eat a piece of its tail until it's within striking distance. And at that moment, when the snake strikes the bird, the venom sets in and the work is done. All that the snake has to do is wait for the venom to have its effect. And then when the venom has worked its purpose, the cantile has its meal. That's just, that's just terrifying when you think about a fat little viper snake that has this little wormy-like tail and the way that it works. And, and we're just like, uh, we don't want to hear about snakes. We don't want to talk about snakes. But, but as terrifying as that is, that's exactly the way that materialism is working in many of our lives right now. Materialism lies 
patiently in wait. It wiggles its flashy, luring tail for some imprudent person to come in close. It even lets some of us nibble away at the lure, eating away at wealth and riches and and the juiciness of comfortable life. And as we begin to feel comfortable and, and begin to think the worm is mine for the taking, then material, materialism strikes and it leaves its venom in our lives. The truth is most of us, many of us, have been bitten and we don't even know we've been bitten. But there are the undeniable effects of spiritual necrosis. Necrosis is where uh, it's just a deadening effect. It just blackens. Some of us walk around with the, the undeniable effects of spiritual necrosis as our walk of the Lord diminishes and decreases and eventually dies. Materialism is as old as sin, and it was just as present in the church of Ephesus as it is in churches of today. Ephesus was a booming economic center in the first century. Uh, We read from Acts 19, for example, that uh, because it was the center of the worship of Artemis, then uh, silver and gold and the silversmiths there brought in a ton of business. And there's, uh, there's no doubt that the people in the church of Ephesus were most likely well off and abundant and uh, on the upper class side of things. And so uh, as a consequence, many of them, including the false teachers, were being drawn away uh, by this snake materialism. We're dra- being drawn away from the gospel. So knowing that this was probably true, Paul returned one last time to address the people who were teaching a different doctrine and to address the heart of what it was that was actually driving them to do so. If we listen closely to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10, then we will see how the love of money can distort our view of godliness and our commitment to the gospel. Now, just to map out briefly our discussion, first we'll be reminded of the necessity, the absolute necessity of ongoing, faithful, persistent, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, faithful, gospel-centered teaching. And second, we will discover the secret motivations of those who teach a different gospel. And finally, we will learn the truth about godliness and worldly wealth. So first, let's look at the necessity of gospel-centered teaching. Now, Paul makes a transition here from talking about gospel-centered relationships to actually how he wants Timothy to live and apply these things in the church. He says in verse 2, Teach and urge these things. Now, initially, that's a very boring and mundane instruction. It seems not that, uh, not that important, not that uh, uh, complex. It's relatively simplistic. But yet, if you let these words have their full effect, we find out how profound... Those words actually are. Teaching has to do with the consistent public exhortation of the gospel. Doing this. This is teaching. And then urging has that gentler, kinder, that more uh, to come alongside of type of uh, action that he has in mind. He wants them to be gentle and to walk with uh, others as he urges the application of the gospel. Uh, Think of a counselor sitting in a counseling uh, office urging someone to take the right course of action to apply the gospel. Now, both of these verbs are in the present tense. Now, for those of you who aren't grammar nerds like me, um, this simply means that these are to be ongoing. Timothy is to keep doing and keep doing and keep doing these things. Teach and urge, teach and urge, teach and urge. The gospel-centered church 
does not go through seasons of teaching and urging the gospel. It doesn't go through seasons of it. If it is, and we're in a three-year season, we're in, when we're in our third year of hopefully a 50-year season of gospel teaching. There's no season to gospel-centered teaching. We simply keep doing it. The gospel is the air that this organism breathes and stays alive. So when Paul says, keep teaching and urging these things, what he's saying is equivalent to you telling someone, keep breathing, keep eating, keep drinking, keep doing the basic necessity that keeps you alive. Gospel-centered teaching is necessary for the life of the church. Now, in a modern context, people evaluate many things. We've had uh, many visitors in our church recently, and um, we know that you are evaluating our church on many different levels. Um, Children's ministry is important. Is it safe? Is it comfortable for your kids? Do you trust the workers? Have they all been background checked? Very important. What about the youth ministry? Do they look like they have fun and have fellowship? And does it seem like people are engaging them and discipling them? People also consider the worship. You know, are the, are the songs engaging in worship? But sadly, very few actually consider what it is that they're going to be taught and urged to do. And if Paul's words mean anything, then that means that should be the very first thing that you consider when looking at a new church. When you consider why you go to a church, what is it that they will publicly and privately tell you to do? What is it that they will publicly and privately urge you, teach you, encourage you to do? Will it be gospel-centered? Will it be to live out the gospel in your life, to... Uh, urge you to be a gospel-centered father, to be a gospel-centered mother in private in the, in, the, in the secrecy of the counseling room? Will they get up behind the pulpit and proclaim to you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we can apply it together as the family of God? Paul's concern is that the church of Ephesus will continue in the faithful dissemination of God's word. And that same concern should be the concern you and I have as a priority as a church today. Now, having given Timothy the command to continue teaching and urging this gospel, Paul now transitions to those who are contrary. Now, this is just the the sad fact that he knows there will be some who will disagree. There will be some who will teach a different doctrine. He's already talked about them in 1 Timothy 1, where he talked about these certain persons who desired to be teachers of the law. And he addressed them saying, he addresses them now saying uh, about these law-based teachers, if anyone teaches a different doctrine uh, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, so we're not going to go much further than just there right now. He's assuming these people, these same people he's addressing in 1 Timothy 1, are going to be people who are now going to raise up a flag and say, hold on, Paul. What you said about women and about men and about elders and about teachers and about all these things that we've already talked about, we disagree. He says, for those who try to deny and discredit these things, they are contrary to the gospel. Now, notice as an observation, he doesn't count their different doctrine as a mere debate of theology. It's not just a... It's not just a a wrangle over opinions about what God's word says. It is actually wrangling over healthy, sound words of Jesus. Now, at this point, we need to see either Paul 
is absolutely egotistical or he's an inspired writer who's writing on behalf of God. I mean, he goes so far that most academians, most uh, debaters would not go to say, if you disagree with me, you disagree with God. Can you imagine hearing that from someone's mouth? Now, either they're so arrogant, so egotistical, that they actually believe that their words are on par with Jesus, or the contrary could be true, their words are on par with the words of Jesus. Now, as people who believe the Bible, as a Bible church, we obviously believe the latter is true. You disagree with the writing of Paul, you disagree with the words of Christ. You disagree with the writing of Peter, you disagree with the words of Christ. You disagree with the writings of Moses, you disagree with the words of Christ, because we believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God written by men, given by God's Spirit. Now, as was true then... There are many today who teach different doctrine. Now the question is, is why? Why do so many people disagree, discard, distort sound doctrine? I mean, there are so many ways people have interpreted Scripture and have taken it from the most bizarre and extreme applications to the most crazy, uh, bizarre teachings and the theories and the speculations. Now why do so many people do that? It does not seem that the Ephesian church nor most of us are altogether that concerned about the motives of people who teach different than Paul. Uh, as, a, as a pastor, I've heard um, many people who, who know they're listening to bad teaching, and they say, well, uh, he may be wrong, but he's got a great heart. Or, yeah, yeah she's, she's a little misguided, but overall, she's a great communicator. I love her blogs, and just inspires me so much. No, she's off about a few things. And still others um, have justified it by saying, it's just a different take on that theology. Well, Paul wants you to understand in no unclear logic that someone who teaches a different doctrine is not just misguided, is not just mistaken, but there is actually evil, malevolent motivations behind it all. Now, you, you might disagree with me, and that's okay, But if you disagree with me, you disagree with Paul. If you disagree with Paul, what would we say? (laughs) Verses 3 through 5, it makes a very clear if-then correlation. If they do this, then they are this. Here's what he says. If they teach different doctrine, first, they are puffed up with conceit. Now, as a Greek nerd that's in the perfect tense, which means they are not becoming conceited, They are not in danger of becoming conceited. They have already been conceited. They are pride-filled, not being filled with pride. Now this makes sense when you think about it. When somebody makes the deliberate, conscious choice to disagree publicly with the Word of God, they're saying, we know better. Instead of having the humility to say, I don't know. These are people who are stepping up and they're saying, we know better to heck with what God says. Disregard it. Don't listen to it. Don't think about it. Don't apply it. We know better. That is conceit and arrogance in its greatest form. So right off the bat, he says, if anyone disagrees with the gospel, 
It teaches something different. You must know you are dealing with someone who has already been consumed by self-conceit. Now that changes the way we listen to a lot of TV preachers, right? Or a lot of radio preachers or a lot of the books that are out. We should be aware that at the base of it, we're dealing with people who are so arrogant. And, 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 and this, this, is, this is what's important about the Word of God. If you don't know, don't say anything. The Word of God is not some instruction manual about how to put together a Lego toy. Or the owner's manual of your car. Most of us can't even understand the owner's manual of our car. But we're talking about the word of God effective to help us understand who Jesus Christ is. And there are so many people who stand up without knowing what it says and says and say, I know better. That's conceit and arrogance. Second, false teachers are without understanding. He just gets more offensive as he goes. This is a regular way of how Paul uh, defines and describes those who teach a different doctrine. They are without understanding. He said so already in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says that they want to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things they make confident assertions about. Um, I, I um, kind of get a really sadistic chuckle when I hear people say, Well, you know the Bible says... God helps those who help themselves. You have no idea what you're saying. Well, you know, the Bible says. Well, does it really say that? Does it really have, does it really, can you see it in black and white print? Is it actually there? Or are you just saying it says that? It is great logic when you're in the midst of an argument to say, well, you know, the Bible says to vote conservative. We've got to be careful about these things. Sometimes we speak without understanding. And that's the root of what's coming from these motivations of of these false teachers is that they are conceited, they're prideful, they're arrogant, they cannot be humble and learn and admit that they don't know. Instead, they have to know it. They have to say and claim that they know it. And then they speak, say they they know it, while all the while they have absolutely no understanding of what they're talking about. Third, False teachers have a sick craving for division. Paul says it this way. He has an unhealthy, and the word there means sickly, craving for controversy, for words, uh, about, uh, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Deceived people crave and cause division. Now granted, there's... Some division that happens for the sake of truth. When, when two people come together and they're talking and, they, and they're deciding whether or not they should be in community together and they realize they do not agree that Jesus is the Son of God. One of them says yes, one of them says no. The Bible says that there is a healthy division that happens over the truth. But this is not that kind of division. This is division that doesn't happen because of the truth. This is division that happens in spite of the truth. In 1 Timothy 1, he talks about speculations. These are things that they don't even know to be true. 
But they were promoting speculations. They were promoting legalistic standards. They were trying to create friction, which is what prideful people tend to do. We get with, uh, Prideful people, like myself in my unsanctified state, love and are bored with peace. We want conflict. Come on. You know, we're the ones on the side going, fight, 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 right? But Paul says that that's a secret motivation of our false teachers. In, in our day, these would be people who love to play the devil's advocate when it comes to theology. These are people who like to stir the pot. I think there's always room for healthy debate. I don't think there's, there's ever room for unhealthy division. But yet these false teachers are driving that These false teachers are wanting to see the church crumble and crack. And I think we are absolutely ambivalent. I don't even know how to say that word. To the fact that there are people who actually come into the church to break it. Don't be naive. There are people who come in to divide. Now, fourth... And finally, false teachers see godliness as a means of gain. In other words, these false teachers saw godliness, or at least their version of godliness, as a stepping stone to financial and social profit. If I can get lots of people to like me and admire me, then I can get rich and wealthy. The more people admired them, the fatter fatter their bank accounts became. The more people listened to them, the more popular, the more powerful they were in their uh, community. This was one of the root motivations, and this is still one of the root motivations of false teachers today. They want economic profit and social power. It used to be well known in American society, if you wanted to get rich, create a religion. People knew that. It's just a byword back in the 70s and 80s, that back when you had the Joneses drinking Kool-Aid and all these other people who were creating these religions, when Scientology became a thing, everybody said, you want to get rich, make a religion. Well, my friends, that's exactly what Paul's saying, that these false teachers are motivated by secret desires to become profitable and powerful. Read their books, listen to them. They don't tell you what you need to hear. They'll tell you what sells. How many times have you walked through Barnes & Noble and seen in the Christian section a book entitled Sin Kills? Or A God Who Judges? Or Your Sinful Life Sanctified? No, you read titles like Your Best Life Now. Because what? That sells. We want to know how to live our best life now. We don't want to know how our sin kills. So they don't tell you what you need to hear. They tell you what sells. They, they feign godliness so that it will be a means to an end. To them, godliness is a stepping stone, a lily pad to get wealthier, to get richer, to get more powerful. Now, by exposing their motives, Paul models how not to be duped by smiles and smooth speech. Just because someone smiles at you doesn't mean they're out for your good. He teaches us how to get to the heart of the matter and how to discern motivations of those who seek to lead us away from Jesus. People who are willing to speak against the gospel. This is, this is something you have to hear. People are, who are willing to speak against the gospel and about your Savior are not people who are out for your good. 
We'll say it even more generally. People who disagree with the scripture, with the word of God as he has given it, are not people out for your good. They are far more sinister than may, uh, you may in- initially think. Beware of the motivations of false teachers. But then Paul moves. He, he, he talks about their error, how they see godliness as a means to gain, and then he decides to correct this false idea of uh, godliness and what godliness actually is and what gain actually is. And in doing so, Paul teaches us how to understand the correlation and the connection between godliness and gain. His thoughts can be broken up into two basic exhortations. Number one, godliness is being content with what God has given. Godliness is being content with what God has given. Number two, Godliness is avoiding the dangerous love of money. So first, this is the first section. I, if you have your notes, I put how the structure of this section works because I think it's cool to see how Paul so artistically merges and weaves these things together. Here's what he says. First line, this is, you know, if this was a poetry class, we'd say this is line A. But godliness with contentment is gain, is great gain. And then you have the center line. That's the meat of this sandwich. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And then you got second letter A here, which connects with the first letter A. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So you see, it talks about contentment and contentment. That's the bread on the sandwich. What's the meat? You brought nothing into the world. You can take nothing out of it. Okay, so that's how he structures it. Now, at the center of that, he's wanting you to understand the meat of his exhortation here is to understand that worldly wealth is temporary and transient. It is not eternal. Perhaps stated better, worldly wealth stays in this world. Seems so simple, but something we forget so often. The bank accounts of the world do not treasure with the bank accounts of of eternity. You came in with zero dollars, you may die with a hundred million dollars, and guess how much of it stays in this world? One hundred million dollars. And typically it goes to the government and people you don't like. (laughs) Instead of continuing to accumulate wealth and power and possessions in this world, Paul wants you to understand it is far better to be thankful for what you have. Be content. This is ultimately why Paul says godliness is, with contentment is great gain. Now notice the difference. The false teachers were seeing uh, godliness as a means to gain. He says, no, no, no. Godliness is gain. And not just gain, it is great gain. It's not just a lily pad to get you further, closer to your goal. Godliness is the goal when it's matched with contentment. Godliness with contentment is the goal. Not a means to get richer. Not a means to get more powerful. Not a means to get more influential. It is not a scheme to get better rewards in this world. It is the reward itself. And truly godly people will see godliness and contentment as the reward that goes on forever and ever and ever. So number one, true godliness is being content with what God has given Number two, and this is the second section. Again, we have an ABA kind of breakup. A, the first 
the, the top bread of this sandwich, the top bun. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then you get the meat. This is the big, thick patty of Pauline theology. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And then you get the bottom bun. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pain, with many pangs. And so you get ruin and destruction and then many pangs on the bottom. And then in the middle of it is this love of money. The chief evil of love, of, of the love of money, the chief evil of the love of money is that it results in the destruction of the one who pursues it. Notice the progression. First, someone has the desire to be rich. Then what happens? They fall into temptation. And then what happens? They are lured into a trap. And then what happens? They fall prey to harmful desires. If money can buy them happiness, then money can buy them anything. So they fall prey to harmful desires. And what's the result? In the end, it results in their ruin and destruction. This is the Cantil Pit Viper. It wiggles its tail. It says, come get the worm. And we as these uncareful, careless birds kind of hop along and we see this worm. Yes, this is what my life has been waiting for. The mill is ready for me. I'm ready to get it. And we get closer and we nibble away. We fall to the temptation. We nibble away at the worm. And then we bite the worm. It's in our mouths. The trap is set. And then the pit viper bites. And the venom sets in. And then comes death and destruction. Doesn't this sound a lot like what James said? But each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, also important is to see that the word temptation is not in the plural. It doesn't say temptations. It says temptation. Now, as a good Bible reader, you want to ask, why is it in the singular? Because Paul is trying to show you that when you have a desire to get wealthy, when you have a desire to be rich, we're not talking, we're going to make some nuances here in a minute. But when you have that love of money, it opens you up to a unique set of temptation that is unique to people who have the love of money. Someone who does not have money and does not desire it um, uh, tends to not be open to that unique set of temptation. I think what Paul is saying here is it opens it up to a unique set of temptation. Now, before um, we have we have people from all ranges of socioeconomic backgrounds in our church. We have very poor people. Uh, we have middle class people, and we have upper class people in this. So, before we start making judgments on who has more and who has least, let's wait until I make the nuance. Let's deal with the love of money first. The love of money opens you up to a whole new set of temptation. If you want proof. Remember what John Rockefeller, Center, or John Rockefeller Sr. said when they asked him, John, how much money is enough? Does, does anybody remember what he said? He said it before I was alive, so. One dollar more than the next, or uh, some people have versions that it says uh, just a little bit more. You see how it opens up to a whole new set of temptation? Because once you get the worm and the first bite of the worm, next thing you know, you have to have more of the worm. You have to eat it more. You have to swallow it wholly. Ecclesiastes talks about how wealth 
is an ongoing problem. When goods increase, they who increase uh, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, you get to see your money as it goes out the door. If we were writing a new version of the message and I got to be the guy translating it, then I would say, you get richer, more taxes. That's the basic principle of fallen humanity. And yet, we know the more money we, go, we get, the more money goes out the door, the harder it is to hold. doesn't matter how much water you cup in your hand, water will always leak. The more water that you cup in your hand, the more water will leak. We know that, and yet, we want more and more and more water, knowing we cannot hold it. Some of us want to get rich, we get rich. Then we want to get richer. And then we don't want to just get rich, we want to be set. And then we don't want to just be set, we want to retire early. And then we don't want to just retire early, we want the brand new car and the bigger house. We want the better creature comforts. And it just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. State-of-the-art toys, state-of-the-art vacations, state-of-the-art getaways, state-of-the-art manicures, state-of-the-art... Uh, uh, vehicles. We just keep going and we just keep going and we just keep going. We don't realize that the lure is going deeper and deeper and deeper into us. Now here's the thing, just to be clear. Paul's not against having wealth. He's against loving wealth. You see the difference? There's lots of people in the Bible who had wealth and yet had a godly pursuit of God. Abraham, Isaac, they were all very wealthy. They had lots of herds in their day. They had lots of money in their day. They were very wealthy people. King David surely had some kind of wealth. I mean, he was the king of Israel, so surely he had wealth. Joseph of Arimathea had wealth. Um, uh, but yet, these are, these are examples of people who had wealth but did not love it, who had wealth and did not pursue it with their life's goal. On the other hand, we have other examples of people who got caught up with the love of money. You have uh, uh, Achan, who fell in love with the coat of Shinar, and Jericho, Absalom, who want, was not content to be a prince, but wanted the throne. You have New Testament examples like Ananias and Sapphira, who weren't content to be saved, but actually had to lie to the Holy Spirit and to the people around them about how much money they gave. You have people like Simon the Magician, who wasn't content just to have the gospel. He had to buy the thing that made the apostles so powerful. And then even in Paul's own life, he mentions a man named Demas who forsook him for love of the world. It's not about having wealth. It's not about what that number is in your bank account. It's not about how much money uh, you have in your yearly income. That's not the point. The point is, is how much do you love it? The point, point is, is how much do you have to chase it? True godliness means that we avoid the love of money, the dangerous, deadly, venomous love of money. Paul's words to Timothy in the Ephesian church are profound, and I feel like they have immense relevance in our postmodern materialistic society Let's just confess it. We as Americans are pretty materialistic. I love America. I've been to many places in the world. There's really no country uh, quite like America in, in terms of freedoms and 
the ability to say whatever I want to say without getting arrested. There's all kinds of freedoms that we enjoy. But at the same time, just to be humble and to swallow the pill, I and my fellow Americans are all materialistic people. I got my AC fixed this week. Called him five minutes later and said, whoa, 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 it's running at 75. We have it set on 73. Um, can you come out and fix that? <laughs> and I could just hear my African brothers going, what? It's an AC. So we're incredibly materialistic people. There's no point in saying that we're not. But yet, Paul tells us that in a world where there's possessions and power and all these things glitter brightly, he reminds us that not, not all that glitters is actually gold. How should 21st century Christians apply 1st century principles about materialism and about the idea that godliness is a means to gain? How do we avoid that? Well, here's first and foremost. We should seek freedom in Christ from the love of money. We should seek freedom in Christ. To crave more money, better possessions, shinier toys, greater creature comforts, and so forth is a natural byproduct of our brokenness. You wonder why. You just can't have enough. Why does what you have get old? Why do we get tired of that nice big house and long for a bigger house? Why is it that at one point we can make the most money we've ever made and yet within a few months we're desiring a promotion to make more? My friends, that is a product of our brokenness. The devil lures us away with many baits. It doesn't matter which one it is. But this one particularly hooks us. Even Christians getting so lured and and, and trapped by the love of money and the love of importance and the love of influence and the love of comfortability. To be comfortable till we die. My friends, we're hopelessly lost in materialism. Hopelessly lost. And I'm speaking to you as a pastor who knows that I myself, without Jesus, am hopelessly lost in my desire for things. And here's the thing. God doesn't just zap that love out of you. He doesn't just snap his finger when you become a Christian and say, you're no longer going to love money. Now, what he does is he gives us his son and he shows us what Jesus did on the cross. He writes to us about the blood and the thorns and the nails and the woody splinters of the cross. And he says, my son became poor that you may become truly rich, not worldly rich, but truly rich. My son died so that you might live. He was buried for three days, poor, broken, dead, in a tomb, no heat, no air, dead so that you might have a seat in the courtroom of God and then he rose again so that you might be comforted even in death to know that death is not final. My friends, when you remember that you you were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish and spot, it changes your value of money. Gold, silver, not that precious. Blood of Jesus, invaluable. My friends, the cure to materialism is the gospel. It's the anti-venom. 
It's the, it's the thing that uh, we should look to. The cross is what we must look to if we are to uh, find healing from this snake bite. Why do you grumble? Why do you groan? Why do you hurt? Why does it just feel like you just do not have enough? You're not satisfied. You're still hungry because you don't have everything you need until you have Jesus. And even then, you need to be reminded daily, you have all you need. That's the cure to materialism. Second, we should be aware of the way the world lures us away from God. Love with God is not compatible with the love of money. Jesus said so himself. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. He doesn't say you probably won't. He doesn't say there's a danger you won't. He simply says you cannot serve God and money. There is an ongoing, ceaseless war being raged over your soul today, over your mind, over your affections, over what you find valuable. And I think we too, far too often underestimate the little ways that the world draws us off of Christ. The little battles that the world wins day in and day out with every commercial, with every advertisement, with every reminder that there's a new phone update coming, with every reminder that there's new technology, with every uh, passing by of a neighbor's house who's bigger than ours, by seeing all the newer cars that are driving around and we want more and we want more. I think we fail to realize how often the world wins. Small, subtle ways. And I think it would be good for us to continue to remember, you cannot love God and love money. Therefore, what is the world going to do? It is going to do everything it can at every second of your life to make you love money. Because when you love money, you will not, cannot, absolutely won't love God. Beware of the little ways that the world lures you away. Even little things can be worms used as bait by a big snake. Be careful. Third, we should make sure which contentment we are trying to attain. Now, I know the most immediate application in here is just going to say, okay, I'm going to go home content. I'm going to look at my TV and not buy a new one for the next three months. Um, I'm going to not sell my house and get a bigger one. I'm going to get one the same size. Um, we We can convince ourselves of this kind of stoic, Greek-like contentment that just simply says we're going to feel our way into the right actions, right? We're going to think our way into the right motives. We're going to convince ourselves that we're content when we're really not that content. Oh, my phone's not so bad. (laughs) Then a year later, guess what? You're having to tell yourself about your new phone that is not so bad. So we've got to be careful. We have to understand that there are all forms of contentment that the world wants you to to, to think about. But we're not talking about that stoic contentment that just simply says, man up, be content. We're talking a contentment that is pointedly in God. A contentment that says powerfully, I am satisfied in Christ. Paul said it, uh, or whoever wrote Hebrews, I tend to think it was Paul or someone like Paul. He said, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with, you, with what you have. But he doesn't end the sentence there. He tells you why you should be content 
and why you should live free from the love of money. He says, because or for, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just read it again. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with the presence of God. Not with the status of your bank account. Let's pray.